0: Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until February 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think Stand Up Tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy Volume 1, Tragic Origins. So it's a show about how Stand Up Tragedy became Stand Up Tragedy, how we've developed. It brings together four different performers who really sum up, for me, what I was trying to achieve when I came up with the concept for Stand-Up Tragedy. It's not necessarily representative of everything Stand-Up Tragedy does. In fact, three out of the four performers you're going to hear on today's podcast are comedians. And we definitely always include some comedians, but comedy is by no means the only thing that you'll see at Stand-Up Tragedy. But what we do ask our comedians to do is to take this opportunity to think about what tragedy means to them and to have an opportunity to play it straight if they want to and this first performer you're going to hear today she really took the brief on and embraced it and for me this is one of the kind of most quintessential iconic stand-up tragedy performances where I saw people actually doing what well, I was hoping that they would do when I when I set up the night. So this is Josie Long performing with us a couple of years ago at the Dog Star in Brixton.
1: My name's Josie Long, uh, I'm a comedian. How's it going? <laughs> um, I, uh, so I haven't done this night before and I liked the premise of it and I think it's because a lot of the time comedians like to take themselves too seriously. Um, like, more seriously than they deserve. Um, and so, I was thinking about the con, like, about tragedy and about what that means. And um, um, uh, I've thought of something to do, but basically, I haven't talked about it before. And it, uh, so, it might be rubbish, and I don't know how long it will last.
0: <laughs>
1: but I think it comes in at like six hours. <laughs> so, that's all right, it's fine. um uh, I don't totally 100% know where I'm going to start, but I think I'm going to start like this. I think I'm quite a positive person insofar as I have a natural, optimistic temperament that refuses to be stamped out. No matter what shit happens to me, I just, in the end, seem to be like, oh, it'll be all right, not it? And I think it's quite odd for me to have that temperament in my family because I... uh, I lived, uh, how do I explain that without divulging details? I don't want to divulge it. Um, my mum was obviously really influential in my life, as people's parents are. And my mum kind of views life as a tragedy, especially her own life. She has a very poetic and tragic idea about herself. Like she likes 19th century French poetry and she likes drama, I think, quite a lot. And then, um, so, like, there's things that she would say, like, she will say things like, I always wish that I'd learned the piano. <laughs> and I'd be like, Mum, you can. You just get lessons. <laughs> oh, it's too late for me. <laughs> like, it's not. You're alive. Or... <laughs> like, she said to me, like, um, basically, since I was born when she was 31 years old, and I remember from the age of... When she was about 40, her basically behaving like, well, I'm old now, my life is done. <laughs> and my parents broke up when I was 12, and I remember sort of being like, we should get out there, and meet someone. And she uh, was like, no, no, it'll never happen for me. And then uh, she quite sadly met my stepdad. Um, <laughs> um, but I think my mum has this attitude that tragedy is in itself really noble and that if you're struggling through something bad, that is kind of bigger and better than if you're just trying to have a great old time. And um, my sister, uh, there's me, my mum, oh, and I'm quite similar to this in some ways, insofar as I'm really good at getting on with things despite problems. For example, I moved into my new flat, uh, well, my flat, about 18 months ago, and there was a broken hook hanger, uh, a broken rail in the wardrobe, And for the first few months, I was like, "Ah, I'll just put stuff near it. (laughs) And then after three months, I taped it up with some parcel tape instead of just buying a new component. (laughs) And since then, I've been like, it'll do, it does. (laughs) Just keep going. And um, then I'm so I'm kind of desperate. I'm a very different type. I'm very kind of romantic in a sort of soaring optimistic this makes me seem better than I am I'm useless but like the idea that I sort of want this big epic wonderful life of joys and treasures and my sister is kind of like exactly neither of those things my sister had a much harder time of it than me growing up because she kind of fell victim to my parents bitter divorce and was battered around a lot more and like had, had to support herself from a very young age and as a result she's just hard as fuck and she doesn't take any shit from anyone. And she doesn't want anyone fruiting around with any <laughs> notions of bloody self-narrative or any of that. She just wants you to get on with it and shut up. Like, that's my... And she's amazing, and she's lovely and bright, but, like, I was talking to her about love quite recently, and she said to me, thing is, you're going to get shit off of any of them. So you might as well just pick one. <laughs> I should say she's getting married and she's really happily engaged <laughs> she loves her husband she's really happy but her, I think her philosophy is like ah fuck it they're all going to give you grief and um, I thought I would tell you about one day where the three of us me my mum and my sister uh, went to visit my grandma uh, and it was in 2006 it was in June or July I can't remember which but it was definitely June or July And I know that because that evening I had to do a preview of my Edinburgh show, which was my first ever Edinburgh show that I ever took to the Edinburgh Fringe. And um, uh, a little background. Uh, My uh, my mum... uh, I have one sister with my mum and my dad. And then I have a half-brother and I have lots and lots of step-siblings. But my mum, my sister and me quite often until my mum moved to Tenerife which leads me to suspect that she's a sex criminal on the run (laughs) Um, uh, they, uh, the three of us sort of did spend time together and um, we got a call I should tell you as well about this, my grandma was fucking brilliant, she's really brusque she was really like, I don't have time for this nonsense, let's just get on with our lives in in a kind of (laughs) And I should say as well, my whole family's adventures through the class system of the United Kingdom because, like, all of us have had completely different educational experiences and life outcomes. (laughs) So uh, the thing about my grandma is that I was close to her, right? And I am not that close to that many members of my family. I love them dearly, but circumstances have dictated certain things and there's not much I can do about that. And I love love my family, I love my sister desperately, I love my mum desperately, but... I was really close to my grandma. She was there for me when a lot of the time other people couldn't be. And I know that there is a thing. I realise now, at 31 years old, that there is a thing. That people in their 20s are like, My grandparents were the greatest human beings alive. And you don't realise mine were the most noble, heroic people. And they died and it changed my life because I had an experience of death when somebody loved me. But... You guys can all fuck off, because this is my one, so... (laughs) It's different, it's better. And also, she was what I had, right, and that's the thing as well. Sometimes that can be very small, you know, and that's what I had. And then me, my sister and my mum found out um, my grandma was dying. Uh, She fell over and got injured, and that got infected. Then they kicked her out of a little sheltered accommodation into a home that she hated and it sucked the life out of her and she was dying. And I was great about this because I didn't have the money or the capacity to have her stay with me and that's all I wanted. And we found out that she was about to die and uh, the three of us got together and had a road trip to go and visit her to say goodbye. My mum lives in... Alp- well, <laughs> my mum lives in Tenerife. My mum used to live in Alpington in South East London where I was brought up. I, at the time, lived in Peckham Rye. Great place to live, and my sister lives in Maidstone out of choice, (laughs) and that's how you can see she is different to me. (laughs) Three of us met up, I think, in Orpington to drive down to visit my grandma, and we took two cars because my sister cannot handle being in the car with my mum. (laughs) So, my mum, I met my mum in Orpington. I hung out with her and my sister came and picked me up and we took two cars. And me and my sister had a conversation going down that was quite light-hearted. My sister is a lot of fun and she's cool and she's quite like. So we would have had a conversation where I would have said something like, well, the, the fact is, you know, that, that guy is a dickhead. And she would have said to me, oh, and all your relationships have been perfect, have they? And i had been like, touche, touche. Um, we were driving down, we were having a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. And we got to the um, car park of this nursing home that my grandma was in and we all got out. And we stopped off in the calf of the nursing home. And I had a carton of orange juice and one of those Geo bars. And I know that for certain. And I don't really understand why. My brain's gone, well, this is the significant part of the day. <laughs> Kind of thing, And I remember sitting quite... For a little while on the cafe before we went up to see her... Because we were sort of chatting... And my mum's lovely but she's very sensitive... So she kind of thought me and my sister were taking the piss out of her... And we weren't... And my sister was getting frustrated... Because my sister doesn't have patience for people being sensitive... And I was sort of trying to be helpful... But not really knowing what to do... And um, then we were speaking to one of the nurses on the reception... And they said, oh she's in this room... Just go up, yeah she's up there... And we went up to, in, to open the door just so we could see her one last time and talk to her and tell her we loved her and say goodbye. And we opened the door and she was dead. And she died, like, that morning. It's just that nurse hadn't thought to tell us that fact. So we went in and it was the first time I'd seen a dead body. Like, and the weird thing I remember is that her mouth was really open and dark, like, like that. And thinking, like, how bizarre it was that, like, that was her but she wasn't there anymore and I could tell she wasn't there anymore. And how shit it was, like, I couldn't say goodbye and how wrecked I was because I can sort of count on some of the fingers of one hand how many people I can truly rely on to be adults and all that stuff. And so I was like devastated. But the problem was I had a preview that night (laughs) for my stand-up comedy gig in uh, Whitstable in Kent which is a lovely part of Kent so what I had to do was In the state where I was, like, bawling and so full of grief and shit, I had to get on a train from Maidstone to Whitstable and do a gig for an hour of new material to people that didn't know who I was or care. (laughs) Which was one of the weirdest experiences of my life, right? Because, like, you... You're probably thinking that it was a bad gig, right? It was one of the best gigs of my whole life. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. And I think it was because off the stage, you're in the midst of your life, and your life at that time is unbearable. And your life at that time is like, one of these people who loved me is gone. And that leaves a very scant number of people. And then you get on the stage, And you don't have to do your life. You do all the stuff that you're working out and you fuck around with it. And no one knows that that's what's happening to you. You're just fucking around in Playville. And then you get off again and you're like, oh! And it reminded me of times when I've been so ill I couldn't move. And then I get on stage and do the gig in Doctor Theatre. And then you get off again and you're like, oh, good. And I was thinking about that preview when almost an exact year later I split up with my then boyfriend. And that day... I had to do the first preview of my new Edinburgh show. And I was thinking about that gig when four years to the day, I had just broken up with a massively significant long-term four years, well, maybe longer than that, four and a half years, to the day I've massively, I've broken up with a massively significant long-term partner and I had to do a gig straight away. And then, um, yeah, there's something really, I don't know what it is I'm trying to say about this, but there's something really odd and silly that this is my job when tragic things happen, you know? Like, and, and also there's something weird about the fact that actually when the worst things have happened to me in my adult life, I've had to geek, and they've been fucking belters. Because the worst gigs that I do are the ones where I'm like, oh, I don't really care, I feel a bit contemptuous, whatever. You know, like, that, that kind. And um. Yes, I don't know what the ending is that going to be, but I was going to say that, like, I think it's quite easy to frame life as a tragedy, and I think that's so boring and pointless. And I think that, like, everyone has loss, obviously, you know, but there's this song that I was talking to someone about earlier by this Scottish band that my boyfriend likes. Uh, not that I don't, that makes it seem like, oh, I'm a girl, I don't love music, I fucking love music, you don't know me. Um, <laughs> There's a band that my girlfriend got me into called DeRosa, and it says, um, the lyrics are, and I said it earlier, but the lyrics are, I'm thinking of a family, the way they keep each other safe, and if the depths of living ever troubles one of them, they help each other understand that life is not relentless loss, and I have tried to understand it thus. And uh, I think that's quite useful, like, you know, shows that some things are pointful, I guess. Um... I guess that's the end of what I wanted to say. I hope you found it interesting. I haven't really written many jokes recently cuz f- why am I fuck jokes? <coughs> but yeah, I hope you found that interesting. I'll see you later.
0: And when Josie came to perform at Stand Up Tragedy, Bryony Hawkins, who was a member of the Stand Up Tragedy team at the time and was doing a lot of our audio production work, recorded this interview
2: with her. As a comedian, would you describe yourself as generally a positive person then?
1: Yeah, I would. Uh, I really would, actually. As we were talking about today, actually, I um, think it is in my temperament to try and be upbeat and ch- I, I'm very much somebody that looks towards the future and is quite imaginative and... I like physical experiences and I like my life. So try and like my life. So even when there are times when I feel very depressed or when I feel very bleak, I like to, in my head at least, believe that those are smaller than the rest of my life.
2: Do any of those tragedies find their way into the work that you do?
1: Yeah, last year I did a show... The show's kind of about how you keep going when you really feel like you're despairing and that things are pointless. And I'm sort of still in a period of my life where I don't really know what the future holds for me in a lot of ways. I suppose no one ever does, but at the moment I'm a little bit like, don't know where my career's going to go, don't know necessarily where I'm going to live and things like that. And at the time when I wrote the show, it was in reaction to, I um, had been living with someone who I really loved and then I just sort of changed my mind about it and lost that and left them and, it's sort of weird even mentioning it because it's not really, but about the shock of that and the freak out of that and and feeling just like I don't understand the world and I don't have any, I guess hope or anything to latch onto, and then about sort of sheer bloody mindedness of getting through that.
2: How did you translate that into something comedic?
1: I sort of believe that you can talk about anything on stage and make it funny as long as you're willing to. Undermine what you've said, fuck around with what you've said, say something serious and then immediately say something maybe irrelevant or like juxtapositional. Uh, I think as well, what's great about stand-up is it's the full range of earnest talking to falling over and hitting yourself. So if you can have like really serious stuff and then something really slapstick or silly, and then I also think sometimes like I know it's a classic thing, but like sometimes humour really helps you cope and you know. It, you start out with a sad thing and you'll just tweak it at the end to be a joke because that helps, you know. That's so. one
2: of um, stand-up tragedy's aims: is to give people like we call it a cathartic experience, a good outlet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you like. So that's like sharing. Would you say it's a cathartic experience for you as well to perform that and share it every time?
1: Yeah, well, for me, like the last few years, I've done shows that have been political, at least in part, and a lot of that has been how do I deal with this new anger that I've got? How do I deal with this new sense of Persecution that I've got, how do I deal with the fear and the sadness and the freak out of all of this stuff and how that's affected my personal life and stuff? And yeah, it really does help to have stand up to talk about it because if you can just try and explain that and hope for the best afterwards, uh, or, or explain that and try and say, And I'm still here and I'm still wanting to do new things. I think that can be helpful for other people. In fact, today I was at this political workshop thing and this boy came up to me and he was like, I want to really say that your shows every year at Edinburgh made me feel much better about not being a conservative at Oxford and really helped me stay on the course that I wanted to have in my life. And it made me feel really great because it made me feel like if you can be honest about what you're going through, then other people understand it and then you can try and...
2: Do you get influenced by a lot of your say I don't know if you have comedy heroes but do you find them performing tragedy quite um a learning experience
1: mm. I mean when I do see comedians talk frankly about loss or about sadness or about anything like that I I think it is really inspiring I think it is really good to see people be brave and talk about their lives I, I do really love comedy that comes from earnestness and sharing or oversharing or whatever I do like that a lot but then I like silliness too and I get most inspired by comedy as a medium because it's so broad and so big.
2: When stand-up tragedy approached you and said, will you do something tragic, what did you first think?
1: Well, the reason I first said I would do it is because I remember a long time ago, Dave gave me a really good swimming tip at the Isle of uh, there's the secret beach, and he told me to go to it. And me and my friend James Acaster went to it, and he hated it because he's very skinny and he was like, no, like no support from the sea I however loved it and there were seals in the water and we had a very good time and then I remembered that and I thought oh he did me that nice thing so he's probably a nice guy and it's probably a good gig so I should do his gig also I really love any sort of writing challenge I do and I like performing things that I get to improv a bit and I like writing things for a specific thing so all of those things applied to, applied appealed to, to me for me a lot of my life is spent counteracting certain things maybe from my childhood or around me like with reference to politics like obviously the prevailing narrative politically is very pessimistic and very grey and then also you know just growing up dealing with like people you love dying things you wanted to work out not working out like dealing with all the loss you have to deal with as a person a lot of my life is spent really fighting the idea that life is a tragic thing and that life is somehow nothing but sadness and that's a thing that I want to talk about later hopefully.
0: So that's kind of what stand-up tragedy can be and one of the things that I was hoping we would achieve is performances like that. Stand-up tragedy itself, the name of the show came to me when I was listening to a podcast uh, by a guy called Mark Marin, who makes a podcast called WTF. And it was a live version of that show and it featured an American comedian called Eddie Peppertone. And Eddie Peppertone had a bit on that show where he was talking about stand-up tragedy. And he was it, the bit involved him suggesting that America needed stand-up tragedy clubs so that people could all go and collectively cry. Um, and that bit was a great bit and it was kind of an angry bit and a And and in a a good way, in a way that I enjoyed. But the name Stand Up Tragedy as a night just resonated with me. And I thought, yes, I would actually like to go to a real, not parody version of that, where people get together and talk about the sad things and can cry if they want to and can think about the darker things in life. Because that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. And it's the kind of way I see the world being in lots of ways. And I also think if we're going to kind of address those things we have to address them head on and look at them and think about them and we can collectively grow and I used to do theatre that's that's what my background is in that's what I studied at university and I'm a big fan of tragedy in in the theatre and One of the things that Tragedy was originally conceived to do was to have an experience of catharsis where you, you, the audience, have gone through a sad thing together but you have a kind of collective uh, release of tension and a new understanding of what the world is. And so I thought that would work really well for a show and the name was really great and it resonated with me and so it had to be Stand-Up Tragedy was what I was going to call it. And so I did a Google search, and I saw that lots of people had, had, had actually used that that phrase in before. Uh, not just Eddie, uh, Andy Zaltzman had done it. Uh, there was a guy called Bill Kane, I think is his name, who's written a a book with that title. But nobody seemed to actually have stand up tragedy nights, like had it as a as a club night. So uh, I realised that it was a good idea and the problem with good ideas when you have them is that you have to then do them. And so uh, I, I, I had to do it. So I set up Stand Up Tragedy and I kind of thought at the time when I first set it up that it would be amazing to have Eddie Peppertone on uh, doing a set at Stand Up Tragedy because he just fits it so perfectly. I mean, for God's sake, the inspiration for the night came from a bit that he did. And so that was just a pipe dream really, because he's an American comedian, he's in LA, but American comedians sometimes come over to the UK and the last, and this year at Edinburgh, Eddie Bepperton came over and I'd reached out to him in the past. And I, I reached out to him again and he said he could do it and So we had him on. So this next performance is from Eddie Peppertone. Uh, Three and a half years ago... I heard uh, a bit by this gentleman uh, which, uh, which gave me the inspiration to do this show. Uh, so it's my great pleasure that three years later I am bringing him onto the stage. He is a kind of hero of mine in many ways uh, and uh, it's my pleasure to be able to share you with him today. Uh, one of our smallest audiences of The Fringe, right? Tragic Tuesdays, I guess. So they're going to be disappointed, all of those people that weren't here. They're not going to have experienced the marvelousness that is Eddie! Pepperson! Thank you.
3: My wife...
4: Hello? Yes. My wife uh, just took her life. Thank you. I've run out of food, so after this show, I'm going to be looking for food on the road. Thank you. These are the tragedies, folks. Get with (laughs) them. Now, I'm going to come out of this bit for one second, because I don't, even though this show is called, what's it called? (laughs) That's exactly... What I thought, what I'm doing is stand-up tragedy because I think in America, where I'm from, it's gotten so tragic lately with high unemployment. And you saw me laugh a little there, and it's because I have a great sense of humor. <laughs> but there's a great high unemployment rate, and um, the manufacturing base is gone in the United States, and I think the comedy clubs are going to be replaced by tragedy clubs because why bother with comedy when life is so tragic and I think the names of the clubs are going to be like oh fuck <laughs> and people will be like are you going to oh fuck tonight and um, like that um Boy, it's always good to hear a walkie-talkie ringing through the halls. Now, remember the theme of the show. It's tragic. Okay? Um, One thing... One thing that I think is going to be tragic is the apocalypse. That's, That's probably going to happen. And I think the apocalypse will either be a nuclear strike or it'll be environmental because the environmental, the environment is on the verge of collapse. And I think that after the apocalypse, we are still going to have motivational speakers. <laughs> and I feel like, let's say the apocalypse has happened and... Let's say this is the amount of people left on the planet, and I'm the motivational speaker.
3: Okay. So we've had a nuclear strike. Temperatures outside are unbearable. It's too hot to go out. We have no running water. We have no food. We have no means of communication. There are rabid dogs running around with three heads. A lot of people are using this apocalypse as an excuse to cower in fear and kill and slaughter each other. I say, why not lose that last 10 pounds? I mean, yes, yes, this is the type of tragedy That is something that makes us want to isolate. That makes us want to just, you know, be in one spot with a gun protecting our little bit of stuff we have, hoping that something will come and save us. I say this is a time to realize your goals. (laughs) Now, I have a three-point plan that can get you through the apocalypse. Number one, learn how to play a musical instrument. Okay? Now, I think a twig can be fashioned into a flute. Number two, with that skill, find a mate. Now, I know there aren't many Women left on the planet, but I believe if you play the flute, they will come. (laughs) And number three, when you find a mate, start a new civilization. Let's get the civilization started over again. You know, funny story.
4: Funny story. I was uh, walking in the forbidden zone, and I saw a man eating... A small child. (laughs) It gets better. (laughs) It gets better. And I said to him, is that your boy? He said, it was. I said, do you feel like giving up? He said, I do. I said, what if I had a three-point plan? that could get you through this apocalypse.
3: He said he was willing to try, and today he is doing very well, staring at the sun, and masturbating.
4: Uh, Now I'm gonna read, that's my apocalyptical motivational speaker, and now I think the most tragic thing of all, at least what I have seen in the world, is poetry, so I'm gonna read you a couple of poems. I wrote these when I was young. This one is called, The Beach is Big.
3: The beach is big. Where's my mommy? Where's my blanket? Where's my blanket? Where's my blanket? Oh, there it is.
4: (laughs) Thank you. This one I think you'll enjoy. I started writing poetry when uh, I used to work construction And I used to take other guys' orders, and I would write, you know, ham and cheese on rye, and then my writing took off from there. This one is called, I wrote this when I was very, very, very young. I was a prescient poet. This one, it's just called, I think you'll love it. I I don't even want to give it a title.
3: Give me a nipple, Mom. Give me a nipple. Come on, come on. I'm an infant. Thank you.
4: This one is called bowling. I swear to God, if this guy starts to bowl before I start to bowl, I'm gonna kill him. (laughs) Thank you. You ever you ever get that where the guy on your right or left and you're like you're trying to time it? I, I feel like I have to explain it. This one is called the moon. My grandmother sits in her chair, rocking slowly back and forth to the rhythm of the ocean that is outside of the room. The ocean goes in the motion of her chair. She bakes bread, and the smell still wafts through the house, as does her love, as does the ocean, as does the chair that rhythmically rocks with the moon, the sun, and the ocean. You know what? I was drunk that night. That one That one was terrible. This one is called I Shit Out Eyeballs.
3: I think you're going to love this one. I shit out eyeballs. First a blue eye, then a brown eye. Maybe, just maybe, I should not have eaten that doll. Thank you, everybody. Eddie Pepperstone, everybody.
0: So, as I said, it wasn't just Eddie that had come up with a bit That contained the phrase stand up tragedy. Andy Zoltzman had also come up with a bit that had that referenced that. And I reached out to Andy to see if he would like to perform at a night that we did themed around Greek tragedy. It was a bit of a tragic night in itself. We were up against the first day of the World Cup. And it turns out that Greek tragedy is not the biggest of draws out of all of the themes that we've chosen. So we were low on the ground, but high in spirits because it was a really great show. And so Andy came along and performed his stand-up tragedy bit. So we've got the kind of two original stand-up tragedy bits that I could find on Google we've had at stand-up tragedy. And here is Andy Zaltzman doing that. You can find his excellent podcast, The Bugle, through iTunes and stuff like that. He has a show coming up in Edinburgh, Andy Zaltzman's Satirist for Hire. His website is www.andyzaltzman.co.uk. So that gives you a clue that the person I'm bringing to the stage is Andy Zaltzman!
5: Thank you, thank you. Great. Now I, I usually do stand-up comedy, so this is uh, you know, a bit of a departure for me. So I'm going to attempt to uh, adapt to the new uh, the new circumstances. This Greek this Greek uh, tragedy gig. Of course, Aristotle did say a lot of things about uh, about tragedy, as We've just heard. He also described tragedy uh, in another writing of his. He described tragedy as this: uh, tragedy is like you know when like really bad shit happens and uh, really fucks you off. I mean, he wrote that when he was 14. And he became more and more eloquent through, uh, through his life. And um, as a comedian, I you know try to make people laugh um, for a living with uh, intermittent success and failure. But I don't think um, comedy doesn't really give a balanced view of life. And I think the ancient Greeks had it about right. When they performed their plays, there were three tragedies. Uh, it was basically a day of uh, drama. Three tragedies and then one, one comedy. So tragedy, three Comedy one, and uh, it's basically like a football score, and it was then followed by a satire play, which is basically men running around with willies out. Um, so I guess that is also like the aftermath of most professional football games. So um, um, so that's what uh, so I'll be uh, I'll be attempting uh, attempting to. And you look at modern Greece, it's it's a kind of a, a tragic morality tale for uh, hubris and arrogance and uh, blown opportunities and. Um, I mean, it's really hard to explain what happened to the Greek, the Greek economy. You know, and, and across Europe, so many natural advantages, and yet so so many people have been punished for crimes that were not not their own. The only way I can explain it—it's like when you meet a man who has clamped one of his testicles in a George Foreman grill. We've all been there, haven't we? And um, he's then an attempted to rectify this problem by borrowing money at a punitive rate of interest that he cannot possibly hope to pay back. To buy another George Foreman Grill, uh, which he has then clamped around his other testicle to make it look like that is what he intended to do all along. And then you' just left with a man standing in the middle of a shopping center, George Foreman Grill clanking hauntingly against George Foreman Grill, shouting, "Help! Help! Someone lend me some more money so I can buy a George Foreman Grill for my penis. <laughs> <Does that
1: work? laughs>
5: I've got to explain the European economic crisis in entertaining and testable terms. So let's, uh, I'll do my best with. Uh, have, have you all been to see stand up comedy? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, um, so so you might sort of pick up, it's just the way I work, I and mean, some of it's come out in, in kind of similar format to uh, <laughs> to stand up comedy. So I'll first do a little bit of uh, audience uh, banter. Hello, Brixton! Hey. Are you ready to weep at the futility of life?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let me hear
5: you say. No. I hear you say, life is a veil of tears and suffering is an inescapable mogul on the ski slope of life as we crash slowly down into the dank valley of oblivion. <laughs> so, uh, I'm Andy Zaltzman. Um, tragic thing happened to me on the way here this evening. Uh, I was walking down the roads and I killed my father and shagged my mother.
0: <laughs>
5: well, you've got to weep, haven't you? Uh, but... Um, <laughs> That's what life's all about, going out with some mates and having a sob at the in- inevitability of death. Now, uh, a widow, an orphan, is a joke, a widow, an orphan and a terminally ill bloke walked into a pub and the barman said, my wife just left me. <laughs> so I uh, better meet you the crowd, uh, meet the crowd a bit. Uh, what's your name? Where do you come from? <laughs> Tricity. Tricity? Yeah. Uh, is that short for electricity or not? Yeah, yeah. W- why not? And where, where are you from?
0: Rotherhithe.
5: Rotherhide And what do you do for a living? A cabaret performer. I knew a cabaret performer once. He died at a tragically early age.
1: <coughs>
5: bit of banter. Now, a um, bit of observational stuff. Uh, have you ever noticed how there's no dignity in death? What's up with that? <coughs> Needs a bit of fine-tuning. Um, now, like most stand-up tragedians, uh, I've just split up for my girlfriend. Well, I say split up. What actually happened was uh, I had a mate who was jealous of us, uh, so he started planting these seeds of doubt in my mind that she was having an affair behind my back uh, with this hot dude-like, and uh, totally fitted her up. I bought it like a two-piece suite, and uh, so one thing led to another, and I smothered her to death with a pillow before realising my mistake and killing myself. (laughs) Um, classic stand-up tragedy. Now, a bit derivative, uh, some might say. Um, now, uh, obviously, one of the great tropes of comedy is the difference between men and women. Uh, this also works on a, uh, on a tragic level. Men and women are very different, and that can lead to tragic misunderstandings. And um, I, I'll tell you one thing women don't like. That's uh, a classic set up for a, for a joke. I'll tell you another thing women don't like. The menopause, and the slow, inevitable decline into the inescapable chasm of death that it so ominously foreshadows. Um, <clears throat> But men and women are very different. I mean, men, if they lost a loved one in a disastrous accident, they probably appear to be quite strong in a few days after the event, but ultimately they'll probably have a serious nervous breakdown. Whereas women, women would be completely different. They'd be, like, massively emotional and turn on the tears for a few days, but ultimately be strong in the long run. What's up with that?
3: <laughs>
5: my mother-in-law is so fat. And my mother-in-law is so fat that she died of a massive coronary at the age of 35, leaving a grief-stricken husband and four motherless children. <coughs> so, um... I thought I'd do a bit of uh, topical stuff, but I do kind of topical satirical comedy. Uh, normally I thought I'd do a bit of topical tragedy. Uh, and here's today's newspaper, Times newspaper. And here we go. Islamic insurgents back Baghdad to the brink. There it is. Tragedy right there. I don't know if the tragic game panel shows are going to be addressing this this <laughs> week. Because comedy doesn't really address these issues in panel shows. So I think tra- I mean, tragedy... Because there are kind of tragedy panel shows. I mean, question time, essentially, that's basically what it is. So, so that, that's classic. That is a that is classic, for, for basically uh, following the form of ancient Greek tragedy as described uh, at the start of the game. It was, uh, you know, it was a lot of hubris, wasn't it? You think uh, George Bush and his mission accomplished sign We're now 11 years on this. And the insurgents did not run through Mosul and stick up a mission accomplished sign. And I think that is uh, bad form on their part. That sunblock, little use in the fight against skin cancer. That's a bit quite tragic, I would say. Tragic, uh, tragic story that shows, you know, no matter how much we fight against nature, nature will always, always essentially gang up and kill us. Here's they're <laughs> <laughs> Just, I mean, it's just trash. Basically, the newspaper is just—that is just absolute fodder. A stamp for any stand-up tragedian. Uh, Criminal gangs running swades of Britain. (coughs) Tough crowd. Tough, tough crowd. Tough crowd. Tough crowd. Kissing lovers, fall to death from sixth floor flat. Yeah, I mean, it works at this gig, but I wouldn't do that in a stand-up. So, uh, go on to the next bit. Um, uh, I've got a few more jokes. Uh, you, can, uh, you can participate in some of these. Uh, proper tragic jokes. Knock, knock. The police. I've got some terrible news, I think you'd better sit down. Doctor, doctor, there's a lump in my head. I've got some terrible news, I think you'd better sit down. Waiter, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. I've got some terrible news, I think you'd better sit down. Mr Rabobo, Mr Cameron, what are you doing with the future of our planet? I've got some terrible news, I think you better sit down. Eh? Bit edgy. Now um, I thought I'd do some impressions. Uh, so, yeah, I've got to do some impressions, uh, and uh, I think they could, they could work they work on a tragic level as well as a comic level. Uh, I'll do this is my Buddy Holly impression. <coughs> Stewardess, could you ask the pilot to aim the plane a bit more at the sky and a bit less at the ground? Is that right? yeah. um, Marvin Gaye. <laughs> Hello, Dad. You look cross. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now my tragic impression of Michael Hutchins. Hello, reception. Yes, yeah, Michael in room 406. or six. Uh, yeah, I'm having a bit of trouble getting a picture on my television, what do you think I should do? <laughs> Tie a belt round and I can hang myself to the door? <laughs> okay, I'll <I'm> give it a <gonna> spin! <laughs> so, um, I think what this could be shown is that comedy like, uh, or tragedy, like comedy, is a very difficult game. You just never know one audience to the next. You know, one day, the audience is going to find you heartbreakingly sad and me crying their eyes out. The next they'll just stare at you as if you're saying isn't even slightly distressing. But, uh, it's pick business. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, uh, oh, here's another one, here's another quick joke before I go. What do you get when you cross the life-threatening illness with some unexpected bereavements? Total misery. (laughs) And uh, final one, Uh, I was in a Chinese restaurant and suddenly a prawn dumpling uh, flew across the room and exploded, causing the roof to collapse, killing several people. Uh, This uh, deep-fried bit of pork uh, then exploded, uh, bringing scenes of absolute devastation. Honestly, it was a scene of wanton destruction.
3: <laughs>
5: well, you may have but people did genuinely die. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> I think I've basically done everything I was meaning to do. I hope, you've been, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I actually did, um... A lot of that was from my very first Edinburgh show, so I did it in 2001. I had a stand-up tragedy routine. And... Um, <laughs> To be honest, I've basically forgotten about it until I heard about this gig. So, so it's been nice to, uh, nice to do it again. Um, so uh, just uh, for, for Thanks very so much for listening. Um, I've been Andy Zaltzman and you're all going to die alone. <coughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, and Andy's bit that he had it made me feel much more secure as well because one of the ways that I came up with the idea of stand up tragedy was I heard a bit by Eddie Peppertone where he was talking about stand up tragedy, and I thought that's a great name for a night, and then I made a night, and then I met Eddie Peppertone in the Edinburgh Festival and he wasn't pleased that I'd uh, taken from his bit. And I was like, "Ha ha! but Andy Elsman has done one like five years before you, and so therefore I've, I'm derivative of a number of comedians and not just one, uh, so you can't see me. And Greek Tragedy was one of our last shows where we still had Bryony Hawkins working with us as part of the team. She'd already moved to Manchester, so she was coming down for every gig. So she's got a lot of commitment and we heartily recommend you hiring her to do stuff to do with audio and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, She's in Manchester, so she's close to Salford, so hire her, contact Stand Up Tragedy and we'll put you in touch. But here she is doing an interview with Andy Zaltzman at Greek Tragedy. Five
2: minutes to go and I'm sat at the back of the uh, dog star with Andy Zaltzman. Hello. Um, So you've come down to it. Is this your first time doing it at Stand Up Tragedy? It is, (laughs) although
5: uh, in my first Edinburgh show, which is now 13 years ago, I had a... uh, Stand-up tragedy routine, um, which I'm dusting off for the first time in well over a decade tonight. So um, that's what I'm sort of basing it around with a few other new new thoughts on the great art form that is stand-up tragedy. Very so,
2: honoured, honoured. Now, Andy, I hear today said you studied classics. I did, yes. So
5: you were quite Greek. Uh, oh yeah, I love I love the ancient Greeks. That's a uh, yeah. You've got a particularly
2: favourite tragic Greek
5: Tragic Greek hero. Well, I was a big fan of Achilles in the Iliad. Um, I really like the Greek comedies. I studied at Aristophanes at university, and um, he did a lot. He did parody of the tragedians uh, in it. It doesn't necessarily fire home with a twenty-first century audience, but the uh, the level of comedy is uh, several steps up on Mock the Week. So, um, uh, so yeah, I studied the uh, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides as well. But to be honest, I didn't study it quite as hard as I might have done because. I was too busy playing cricket and doing other studenty kind of stuff, so, yeah. <laughs> writing bullshit about sport. So. Yeah, so up the World yeah, so yeah, Greek tragedy versus World Cup football. Two and a half thousand years ago, that was a very one-sided contest. Now it's also a one-sided contest, but the other way. So it's a tough. Anything against World Cup football is is always going to be going to be difficult. As the front page of the Evening Standard. Uh, which I just saw walking off the uh, the tube. Uh, World World Cup football festival begins. Presume that's the front page. Presumably on the second page is Iraq going massively tits up. So that shows the world's priorities. Sport gives us a license to ignore all reality.
0: We had a really great time at the Edinburgh festival this year. You've already heard Eddie performing there. And when we came back, we had a a, a gig in London called Tragic Friends. A uh, really big gig, you know, really full room where we showed off the best of the people that we'd met in Edinburgh new people, old people, tragic friends, performers. We really, really love and performers who've really fitted with our aesthetic like that's been one of the exciting things about doing stand-up tragedy is meeting people who are already working in the kind of area we are and going right these really fit together it's unusual to get an opportunity to be able to do this kind of material it's what the performers think and we think it's unusual to find performers who really understand what we're trying to do and so it's a really lovely connection So that's what we did. We had this gig called Tragic Friends and at Tragic Friends I did a performance, did a story about what happened to us on the last day of our Edinburgh Festival experience. So it's been a long road, stand-up tragedy, up till now and we're going to keep travelling down it. We've got loads more to come. I won't say any more particularly about it and here's me telling a story. So, I don't know if this counts as tragedy, but it's about stand-up tragedy, so that's kind of why it's in the show. So, I I mentioned just now that we took a show up to Edinburgh, and uh, it was a great time. We had really good audiences, we had really good performers, it was a really great time. But as the uh, Edinburgh run carried on towards its end, I suddenly realised a flaw in my logistical abilities. Now, what I'd done is I'd left slots at the end of the run available for performers that I met up in edinburgh who i hadn't met before who i so i could slot them in what i didn't realize is no one wants to do any performances on the last day of the edinburgh fringe because they haven't got a show to promote and they're tired very tired very very tired and, and so it became clear to me that I was not going to have any acts for my last, uh, last. I wanted a big finale, a big tragic finale, you know, uh, but I didn't have uh, any acts. So I was scrabbling around to find acts and I, I found three acts and I thought, fuck it, they can have longer slots. Um, and so that was, that was where I was at going into the last show I had three acts and uh, they were going to do longer slots it was probably going to be okay so Liz who is uh, basically uh, known as the dad of the stand-up tragedy crew uh, I'm the mum, she's the dad we like to break stero- uh, gender stereotypes uh, at stand-up tragedy um, and she, uh, she, but she said to me come on, in London you often do the show drunk you haven't done the show drunk the whole time so you're going to be drunk for the last show uh, so that was her objective was Getting the host drunk, uh, which she did very well. We saw a great show, uh, Miranda Kane. I very much recommend it. Some great uh, comedy about sex work. Uh, and then we went on to do stand-up tragedy. Uh, and we're sort of standing outside, flyering and I'm sort of drunk, flying. I was the best flying I'd ever done. You know, I was properly in- selling the show. Nobody cared because it's the last day of the Edinburgh Fringe, and they've all got five-star shows to go to. Actually, um, so uh, so that's that's how I'm sort of trying to sell the show and a familiar. Thing- Walks uh, up the hill towards the venue, uh, and I I think, hang on, that's Stuart Lee. And uh, so I'd seen Stuart Lee a couple of times in Edinburgh. You go up during the fringe, you bump into the famous people, you know, in the Sainsbury's. I'd seen him a couple of times, but every time I'd seen him, he was with his kids. And so I'd not thought that it was appropriate to go up to someone with their kids having a life and say will you do my show will you do my show i love you um so i didn't i didn't bother him um but then so, you know, this sort of felt like fate uh there he was uh so i went up to him and i said uh, free show at 7 30 sir and uh he said yeah stand-up tragedy that's what i'm here for <laughs> right I mean I don't I don't know why he came to see the show. I don't know if it was because he was like looking in the book and he goes like, Oh well, that sounds like my cup of tea stand up tragedy. Or if, you know, one of the performers who's performed here, like Josie Long or someone self- recommended us. I hope that. I, I suspect the second. Um, uh, the first. Whichever was the more negative is the one I suspect. Because <laughs> I are on a tragedy night, so I assume the worst. Um, so I, I, I directed him to our, our venue. And I was like, right, Stuart Lee's in the audience. Stuart Lee's in the audience. This is going to be a good show. I've only got three acts. How's this going to go? I don't know. I don't know. How's this going to go? Then uh, one of those three acts, he finishes his comedy show and he comes down and he says, I don't want to do the show. Uh, I'm tired. I've just done my last, last, last show. I'm not doing it. Sorry. And I've got two acts. And Stuart Lee's in the audience. And it's time to go, I go go in and I go up on stage and I do all the sort of spiel that you saw earlier on, but even more shambolic. Like, that was quite shambolic tonight. I'm kind of specialised in shambolicness. It's kind of my thing. Um, But this was really shambolic. I was a complete mess. Like, the the microphone kept going wrong and dropping the mic and all sorts of things. Now, I welcome the first act on. Now, she is a brilliant harp player called Josie Rose Duncan and she's got a harp, Right. And it's normally beautiful and it normally works brilliant, but she starts and then it doesn't work, like it's not in tune. So she has to retune the harp. It's a lot of strings on a harp. It's kind of an awkward moment. Then she starts the song uh, and then she stops and starts again because she'd started in the wrong key because when she was tuning, she'd put the switches in the wrong place. So this is so far my show for Stuart Lee. It's a brilliant show. Uh, that I'm presenting him. I mean, she was brilliant, don't get me wrong, but it was a sort of awkward sort of start. The second act we had on, uh, he was a a storyteller, uh, a Scottish storyteller, so we were really pleased to get some Scottish acts for our last night. That was kind of a coup for me. I was pleased about that, going out with some Scottish acts. Although, I did think that the referendum was the next day, and it was obviously not. (laughs) And I did say that in front of Stuart Lee and then get into an awkward interaction with the two Scottish people about what they were voting for. You know, I, I basically pressed all the wrong buttons in the room. So that was some nice skill. He came up and, he, and then he said, I don't think I have any tragedy from all of the Scottish folk tales. Do you understand that? Because I don't understand that. But he, he reckons he didn't have any tra- tragedy. So he decided to tell a story about um, what was under his kilt uh, and how he'd once flashed everyone in the Royal Mile... And that was a good story. It wasn't very tragic. But at this point, I didn't feel like I was presenting Stuart Lee with my best work. Um, th- thankfully, so at this point, I was pretty much stuffed. But luckily, just before I'd come in, I had uh, spoken to a wonderful guy called the Monkey Poet. And I'd said to him, Look, I haven't got any acts. I've wanted to get you on the whole run, but you're like a will-o'-the-wisp. I can't catch you. You're always running somewhere, running somewhere. saying, so, said, Yeah, I'll do the show, but I'm going. Um, and he was like... I can't do it. I've got no voice. And I'm like, what? He's like, I really have lost my voice. And I'm like, okay, man, don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, But then he came through. So once the show started, he came in just as I was going on and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, I'm going to do it. And I was like, because he knew Stuart Lee was in the audience and he wanted to help us out. And he was very kind to do that. So the next act was the monkey poet. He did two poems and he had no voice. And the thing is, his poems are about shouting. But he couldn't shout. So it was very painful to watch this man just hurt his larynx. And he was like, do you want me to do another one? And I was like, no, it's okay. And everybody had run short. So I get up and I got like nearly half an hour of material. I got one song, it's three minutes. And I look into the audience and I catch Stuart Lee's eye. And I sort of think, right, this is a moment I can transform this last moment of the Edinburgh Festival for us. So I said, you know, well, our next act, I don't know if he wants to do it. Uh, He might not. He doesn't know me from Adam, so he probably won't trust me. His stage persona suggests he might very well say no. (laughs) But if he wants to share some tragedy with us tonight, we'll... And Stuart Lee nodded his head and smiled and I thought fucking hell I'm going to introduce Stuart Lee and then I did introduce Stuart Lee everybody and Stuart Lee came on the whole audience were like what the fuck's happening and and when I say the whole audience I mean like four people um, and the performers And, and, and then Stuart Lee comes on stage and he fucking does 20 minutes a solid fucking amazing performance that he won't let us podcast but it was amazing and, uh, and the, the, by the end of his act, the room is packed. The whole of the bars come in because they know Stuart Lee's on stage. And he finishes and I've still got three minutes and I've got a song that's three minutes. <laughs> so then I asked the audience if it's appropriate for me to go on after Stuart Lee. And the audience said, yes, bless them. Uh, and then I closed up the show with a song. So tonight, we're going to close up tonight with that same song. So we're, but ne- you never know, Stuart Lee might arrive. I mean, I did send an, an email to his agent because cause that was the thing where, as he ran away, I sort of said, Stu, I'd love to get you on the, on the bill in London. I'd really like to book you. What, you. what do you reckon? And he was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a website. I'm like, no, I, I, just, I want to. And he was, I said it again. He said it a few times. He said it a few times in a clear, it's a bit way. Uh, so, but you never know. Who knows? Maybe his website does mean that you can contact him directly. It doesn't. Uh, but maybe he'll come, and maybe he'll close the night. But if he doesn't, I will sing us out. And that is my sort of almost tragic, but not quite story of the last day of the tragedy at Edinburgh. <laughs> And so, as I mentioned in that story, we can't share the performance that Stuart did with us. I can only attest that it was perfect for Stand Up Tragedy. And another example of what I'd always hoped for in doing Stand Up Tragedy. The gig itself was a really atypical show of ours in many ways, but it also will always have a special place in my heart, even if it is one filled with terror as well as joy. We can't share with you what Stuart did, but we can play the end of that gig. We're going to end the show with me performing on that last day. This is also a reminder that stand-up tragedy isn't just about comedians talking on stage. There is also musicians. There are also storytellers, spoken word artists and cabaret acts, theatre pieces. We've had really so many different kinds of tragedy and we're always looking for more. If you want more tragedy, listen out every week for more of our selected tragedy volumes. We're going to be putting them out over the the oncoming weeks between now and our next live show. You can also read tragedy on our blog, which you can find at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. We're on Twitter at standupfortragedy and we're on Facebook, where you can friend us, make some friends with the tragedy, or you can like us. Well, that's certainly made a very uh, surprise end to our Edinburgh experience. Uh, have we got time for my song? Is it appropriate to follow Stuart Lee? I don't know. Have we got time for my song? Yeah. All right, we're going to do a song. Who knows, uh, who knows what a platform game character is? Right. I found that people don't know. I was doing a show just a minute ago uh, about, about computer games, and everybody in the audience knew there. So that was a, a relief to me, but I knew that it would still be the case. Right, platform game characters, computer games where you jump up onto different platforms, so Mario, Sonic, that sort of thing. So do we all know what a platform game character is now? Yeah. Right. Okay, shut your eyes, and um, imagine your favourite platform game character. Okay, and now open them again. I am that platform game character. This is the song called The Last Platform. It's about the last platform game character to ever exist. Uh. My face is smiling. That's how they program me. These pixels, they are dying The world disappears slowly Dust fills a cartridge Jungles and mountains disappear Here, here, here I try to jump onto a ledge But it's no longer there No one plays this anymore No one plays this anymore, uh oh no one plays this anymore They have forgotten me, they have forgotten me My friends and my enemies, they all went first Leaving me all alone on the screen Walking through empty landscapes, remembering what we had been It used to be bright, the music didn't stop And if we died, we just got up again We didn't realise that things could change That the game could ever really end Dust fills the spaces, making everything glitch I'm separated forever you can't control me anymore This is the last platform I cannot jump This is the last platform and why can't I jump This is the last platform and I cannot jump This is the forgotten my name and the name of the game soon you will forget me too you'll put me away because i don't work and you have new and better things to use things that don't age and don't break things you think will last forever to me, learn from my fate. They said the same things about me. However, no one plays this anymore. No one plays this anymore. Uh oh, no one plays this anymore. They have forgotten me. They have forgotten me. You have forgotten me. This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with some interviews and some extra production from Bryony Hawkins with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over theme George Brufton and the reactionaries.
3: time to go. It's time, time to